you would turn with me in your copies of God's Word, we resume our time in John's Gospel. That's John chapter 1. We'll commence our reading there at verse 35. That's John chapter 1, starting at verse 35. Beloved, hear once again the holy, the inerrant, the infallible word of the living God. Again, the next day after John stood, and two of his disciples, and looking unto Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt, and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak, and followed him, was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon, and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee, and findeth Philip, and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael, and saith unto him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, when thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God. Thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter ye shall see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, and may he bless it to us richly this morning. Friend, when we look at evangelicalism today, as we see the confusions and the convulsions that seem to be right through professing Christians, one question we have to ask is, what is the cause of it all? Why is it that in this age we have so many evidences of what we could call a Laodicean spirit, a spirit of lukewarmness, 
a spirit of formality and a spirit of confusion. Friend, I've said this to you before, but I think in many ways the answer to that question is really simple. I think the reason why evangelicals, and I think the reason why in Reformed churches we partake of that same Laodicean disposition, is because in many ways Christianity has become Christless. Our text this morning reminds us that the only true Christianity is one that deals with Christ as a living, personal Christ. And beloved, I've said this to you many times, I know as we've looked at these gospel accounts, that that this is over and over again reiterated to us by all four of the evangelists, that, that here is the living and the personal Christ that you and I must know and must walk with. He's not an idea. He's not a theory. He's not a redemptive theme. He is a living person. But when we come to our text this morning, the question that we probably are faced with is, how does this instruct us to deal with the living Christ, the Christ who is there? We're not in the first century. We are not in those days when Christ walked the earth in the flesh. So so how does this text instruct me to think and to live with the living Christ? It really is a question that you and I should have on the forefront of our minds any time we come to the Gospels. And I'd submit to you that in many ways, beloved, our text this morning answers that question powerfully. How do we think about the Christ who is there? Now, friend, as we look at this portion of the first chapter of John's Gospel, allow me to remind you where we are. John, you remember, began the first 14 verses by giving us something of a, of a theological introduction to the whole history that he's to write. And do you remember he begins by telling us that God had sent a man by the name of John, that is John the Baptist, who would be the witness of God to his son. And really, and you find that in verse 6, but really from chapter, from chapter 1, verse 15, all the way down to chapter 1, verse 35, there is then a prevailing emphasis on this idea of witness or record-bearing. The focus is on John being God's solemn witness. In fact, as you read through those verses, time and again, you'll find the themes of, of record-bearing, testimony-bearing, confession. Why is that? Well, John is reminding us that the very thing that he wrote of in chapter 1, verse 6, has come to pass in history. John has borne faithful record and testimony to Christ. But there's something of an overlap. Because John is going to show us that something else has also taken place in history. In verse 14 of chapter 1, you remember, John writes this, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. If you look at verse 29, the next day John seeth Jesus coming unto him and saith, Behold the Lamb. Verse 35, verse 36 rather, looking upon Jesus as he walked, John says, Behold the Lamb. 
And really from verse 35 to the end of the chapter, the focus is no longer record-bearing or testimony-bearing. The focus is seeing or beholding the Lamb. In other words, John is showing us not only did John the Baptist's record become real in history, but this is the Christ who was seen. Now, all of that's true, beloved, and we've already taken up that theme before, but our text this morning actually creates something of a caveat to understanding these last several verses of the chapter. You see in verse 41 this idea of seeing Christ. You remember, Andrew says, we have found the Messiah. We have seen him who we were called to behold. And he says that they've seen the Messiah. That's the Lord's anointed. In verse 45, Philip says this. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write. We have seen him. And again, you remember when, when Philip goes to his brother Nathaniel and Nathaniel casts up some kind of objection You remember Philip's reply. It's identical to what you have in verse 39. He says, come and see. The focus in this section is the seeing of Christ. Now that holds well with what we've said up to this point, but there's a radical change that takes place. The evangelist is going to emphasize something else. You see it in verses 47 and 48. John, sorry, Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, I saw thee. In other words, beloved, what the evangelist is doing for us is he is confronting us with the reality that this is the Christ who must be seen, and also the Christ who sees. In other words, what you have here is this is the Christ who is to be beheld, as John the Baptist commanded, and also the Christ who beholds. Now the question, of course, is why is this emphasis? Why make the point and emphasize this idea that Christ sees as well as he is seen? I suppose one answer is that in chapter 1, verse 14, the idea is that Christ is incarnate. He he dwells among men, and, and so as he dwells among men, of course he is going to see and be seen. But beloved, if if we've been paying attention at all to what's gone before, if we think about it for just more than a minute, surely there's something deeper that the evangelist, the inspired historian is giving to us here. He's not simply giving us anecdotes. He's instructing us, as he already did in the first several verses, about basic Christian discipleship. And in that sense, beloved, these verses remind us that the disciples of Christ know and are known of Christ. There is a mutual knowing in Christian discipleship. In other words, Christ is beheld by disciples, and John would remind us that the Christ who is beheld beholds his own. And so our theme this this morning is very straightforward. It is that Christ and his people truly know each other. Christ and his people truly know each other. And uh, though that seems perhaps a bit pedantic, the fact of the matter is what John presents to us in these two vignettes is incredibly profound for Christian discipleship and what it means to walk with the living Christ. 
So I want us to consider this, first of all, the Christ who is perceived, and then Christ perceiving. The Christ perceived. In verse 41, we're told by Andrew that we have found the Messiah. And then Philip goes on to say, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and the prophets did write. Now, why is, why is that so significant? Well, partially, friend, you'll notice that in both confessions, the ideas are rooted, they're grounded in Scripture. They've not simply said they have found Jesus. And they've not simply said that they have found the idea, their own idea of a Savior or a Redeemer. But they root and they ground their confession of Christ in Scripture itself. But what's so staggering is that then they move from that theology of Christ that they find in the Scriptures and they apply it personally to Jesus, whom Philip here calls Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Friend, I want you to think about that just for a moment. This shows us the kind of knowledge and the kind of seeing of Christ that John here is showing as part of Christian discipleship. The first element of this seeing of Christ is, if you like, propositional. That is, it is grounded in truth, not sentiment, not emotion. It is grounded in truth and the truth of Scripture. This is the Messiah of whom Moses and the law did write. Now, friend, immediately this offers a corrective Immediately it offers a corrective because it reminds us that the Christ who is to be beheld is a Christ who possesses objective existence. In other words, Christ is not a sentiment that's moldable by the minds of men. No, friend, the Christ who is there is a Christ who is real. There are things that are true about him that are not made true because men think it so. Friend, how much is that a corrective of our generation? Christ is not moldable. The scriptures hold him out as one that must be known, the truth of whom is certain. The apostle reminds us of this. He says, whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning. True Christianity consists of learning truth, not just sentiment or idea. It is truth that is concerned with. And beloved, as you look at that as well, the apostle further explains that there's a problem. There's a problem because how then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? The problem is if if there are no preachers preaching the subjective revelation of Christ from the scriptures, then how could they believe in him whom they have not known? Because all the while we are dealing with a Christ who is there. Propositional truth in Christianity is indispensable. But is that sufficient for salvation? Well, even in our text, the answer is no. You remember the devils also came out after Christ, crying and saying, Thou art Christ, the Son of God. Even the devils had a propositional knowledge of Christ. But there's something else in the confession of these two men. In Philip especially, you find this. Him of whom? Moses and the law and prophets did right. I, I suppose that's a subtle thought, but, but I want you to contemplate 
what really Philip is saying here to his brother. Him, singularly, as though no one else, no other man in Scripture had ever been written of. Him, he only who is the focus of the law and of the prophets. We have found him. And so, friend, it's not just that these disciples knew the Scriptures. It's not just that they knew facts about the Christ who was to come. They didn't just have propositional knowledge of him. But they knew of his importance, or if you like, they knew of his preciousness. It's as though Philip turns to his brother and says, though the Scriptures write about so many men, it is him, he only, that is its central focus, and we found him in Christ. Beloved, this is the sentiment of the Scriptures. My beloved is white and ruddy, the chiefest among ten thousands. Thou art fairer than the children of men. They've said that we've found him. Him who is peerless in worth. Him who the Scriptures commend to us as Shiloh, the one to whom all dominion rightfully belongs. We have found Him. They know something of His preciousness and something of His worth. In other words, friend, they turn to their brothers, both to Peter and Nathaniel, and they say, we found Him who is the image of the invisible God, the one in whom all things were created by Him and for Him. Friend, they found him who is of matchless worth and value. This is part of their perception of Christ. It was not just that they found an anomaly. They found the one whom they say here is the center of all of the longings of God's people. And beloved, that is part of Christian discipleship as well. Peter reminds us, unto you which believe... He is precious. They don't simply know the truth of Christ. They also know his preciousness. But friend, is that is, is a knowledge of the significance of Christ sufficient unto salvation? I want you to notice that even the devil had a knowledge of Christ's principal place in the world and in the economy of God. We've seen this before in Matthew 4. Satan turns to him and says, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down, for it is written, He shall give his angels charge concerning thee, and in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time they'll dash thy foot against a stone. Note the logic behind the temptation. If you are the Son of God, therefore you must be central to the promises that are made to all of God's people. And so he applies rightfully Psalm 91 personally to Christ. Christ is, of course, peerless, and Satan acknowledges his peerlessness. And so, beloved, even the devils can know that this Christ is significant, just as they can know that he is the Son of God. But there's a third element in these confessions that we can't forget. The knowledge which they possess of Christ is personal. We have found him. We have found him. I want you to notice how Christ himself puts this kind of knowledge to us in the scriptures. He says, this is life eternal, that we might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I want you to notice, friend, in that text, Christ does not simply say that it is life eternal to know about Christ. 
It is to know Him personally. To be able to say in some sense and with the same kind of fervor as you find in in both Andrew and Philip that, that they have found Him. They've not just learned about Him. They've not just been instructed in the Scriptures concerning Him. But they have found Him personally. Christ says that's the kind of knowledge that is life eternal. The finding of Christ personally is salvation. And beloved, note how the apostle himself describes his own experience. He says, I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against the day. In other words, he says, I I don't just know his promises, I know him. Friend, you you and I have human relationships. People that we follow very closely in our lives, whether in our homes, places of work, or education. And the idea is, in our relationships, we can generally, generally get the trajectory of that person's life. We can predict to some measure of accuracy how they're going to act. Paul says that that's the kind of proximity he has with Christ. Yes, Christ has promised these things to him. But when he says, as he does in 2 Timothy, that he knows him whom he's believed, he says, I've had personal experience and knowledge of him who cannot lie, who will save to the uttermost all who come to him by faith. Beloved, this is communion and this is knowledge. This is the most intimate of communion and knowledge. It's not about Christ, it is of Christ. What does that look like? I don't know if I've shared this anecdote with you before, but one of the most powerful examples of this kind of knowledge, this personal acquaintance with Christ, I find an example of of two German missionaries. The the two men were, I believe, 17 and 18 years old, just, just out of school, really. And they learned about an island that was inhabited by 3,000 slaves, African slaves. And it was owned by, by a British man. The British man was an atheist, and he said that, that the only one, the only ones whom he would allow on this island were those who were slaves. And, and so he said, I'll have no preachers, I'll have no missionaries come to that island. Well, these two German missionaries, they, they heard about this story. And they said, then we need to sell ourselves into slavery so that we can go and that we can preach Christ to these 3,000 souls. They were on the ship after they had sold themselves. And the community around had gathered on the shoreline to see them off. And these two seemingly promising young men going into slavery obviously cut at the heart of these, these crowds. And as they heard the wailing of their parents, their grandparents, and their friends, one of the men turned as his ship was sailing away, and his only reply to them was, is not the lamb worthy for the full reward of his suffering? Once you notice, he didn't say in that moment that his primary goal was the salvation of souls only. These two missionaries had such a personal acquaintance with Christ 
had such a real and existential knowledge of his worthiness that even if they were to condemn to live as slaves just so that Christ, his name would be exalted in the salvation of souls, they saw it as no mismatched gift. They saw it as the least of their offerings to a Christ who was peerless in his worthiness. Friend, that's the kind of knowledge of Christ that you and I have to see here. And and in fact, you you even see shards of that, don't you? It's in piecemeal. It's embryonic in our text. but, But as soon as Andrew and as soon as Philip come into acquaintance with Christ, what is their first work? They go and they take Christ to their brothers. They go and they take Christ to others to exalt His name. Beloved, it is that that knowledge of Christ that will induce evangelical fervor. It is this knowledge of His peerlessness and His worthiness that will drive you to go out and to plead that men would exalt Him. This is the manner, beloved, in which Christ is truly perceived. And we see that so vibrantly in our text this morning. But that's only part of what the evangelist sets before us. The other part is that Christ is also a Christ who sees. He is not only perceived, he is perceiving. I want you to notice in verses 40 and 42, you have the first instance of that. Peter goes to Christ, and and you can imagine that Peter is going to Christ in this moment, largely to learn something about him. He's going to discover something about Jesus. And perhaps to his surprise, he actually goes and he learns something about himself. He goes to Christ for for a discovery of the Lord, but the Lord actually turns to him and he says, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas. That's a rock. He, he, He is told that he will be called something in the time to come. Surely that's not what Peter expected, but that's precisely what he found. And that's not all. When you come down to Christ's interactions with Nathaniel, note what he says. It's a striking turn of phrase. Behold an Israelite indeed. Thus far, the only thing we've been commanded to behold is Christ. Verse 29 and verse 36. Behold the Lamb. But Christ turns around and he says, Behold an Israelite indeed in whom, in whom is no guile. And then, in his interactions with Nathaniel, he goes on to say, When thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Now, now friend, I I suppose when we look at that interaction, we we could come away and think that that's a rather strange, a strange moment. A strange interaction, really, from the beginning. But there's there's a very crucial connection between Christ's exclamation, behold an Israelite, and Christ's confession that he saw Nathanael under the fig tree. You see, what Christ is saying here in this text is that he could make a such, such a pronouncement about Nathaniel because Christ's sight was not hindered as men's were, as, as were most men, all men, really. Christ could see into the heart. And so when he says, I could see you under the fig tree, even though that was impossible to the natural man. Christ, God-man, 
can make such pronouncements because he's not so hindered. A friend, as we look at this text, again, there are three aspects of this site that I want us to think about. I want you to notice here that in this text, the sight of Christ is performative. It performs something. Here he turns to Peter, first of all, and he says, Thou shalt be called Cephas. A friend, this is a prediction. He's not saying that this is Peter's name at this moment. He's saying that you will be called a stone. I think Calvin's comments here are quite helpful. He says, Christ now magnifies the grace which he determined afterwards to bestow upon Peter. And therefore he does not say that this is now his name, but delays it to a future time. In other words, what Christ turns and says to Peter is, I will make you a rock. Christ sees, in other words, what his grace will accomplish in Peter. And he sees it even now. He sees that Peter will go from being the son of Jonas to a rock. Now, friend, what does this show us? Well, it shows us, first of all, that the sight of Christ, his perception actually performs things. He is, Christ is not passive. He sees the work that he himself will produce. And so as the scriptures present this to us, it does so, it does so quite directly. He calleth those things which be not as though they were. Romans 4.17 This is the kind of sight that Christ has. He sees and so performs. And he, and he sees what he will perform. I will say to them which were not my people, Thou art my people, and they shall say, Thou art my God. This Christ sees the people whom he will bring and make his own. And he calls them his people based upon what he himself will perform. As he calls Peter in this moment a rock, a man who who is really tethered to his own fishing nets at the time, an obscure man, Christ sees what his grace will accomplish, and he calls him accordingly. Christ sees and performs, and performs what he sees. We also have to notice in this text how the sight of Christ is presented to us in perfection. His sight is perfect. Christ says, Behold an Israelite indeed, when he sees Nathaniel. I want you to notice, there's quite a lot in that simple declaration. We don't have time this morning to, to, to work even through the majority of things we could say, but, but notice, friend, that this is not flattery. We should not see this as though, as though Christ were, were baselessly attributing something to Nathaniel that was, that was truly baseless or groundless. This is not flattering. He is, what he's doing here is he's testifying That Nathaniel is a genuine believer. Here is a true, that is a spiritual Israelite. A friend, I want you to notice that as you work through the gospel accounts, Christ has made a distinction where where very few did. If you were born a child of Abraham, many in that first century context simply assumed you were of necessity a true Israelite. Christ makes the distinction. Here is one who is an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Christ is saying he has peered into the heart of Nathanael, and he sees Nathanael as he is. And beloved, as you work through John's gospel, 
this heart penetrating and perfect knowledge is testified to again and again. Let me give you just a few examples. In John chapter 2, you remember these words. Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men, and needed not that any should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. Again, in his interactions with, with the woman at the well in Samaria, you remember what, Christ, what, what she says of Christ. He told me all that ever I did. It was promised, you remember in the prophecy of Isaiah, that he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither shall he reprove after the hearing of his ears. And in Revelation 2, the text that we read, he says, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience. Now friend, what do we make of all of that? Well friend, the point is is that Christ knows the hearts of his people. And he knows them even as a man. Now we are not attributing omniscience to the humanity of Christ. We're not confounding these two. The infinite is not containable in the finite. But what we do find is that from the divine nature of the Son of God is communicated that knowledge to his human capacity such that he knows his people's hearts truly and really. And what's so striking about Revelation 2 is that this is not simply respecting those whom he saw in the days of his flesh. In Revelation 2 and 3, you have the pronouncement of the Son who is ascended. And he says, not only did he see their works himself, he knew their patience. He saw their hearts. Friend, our living Christ, in his his exalted humanity, as God-man, as the one who stands in the midst of the golden candlesticks, he knows your heart and he knows mine. And even better than we do ourselves. And that's as a man, as our Redeemer. That ought to be humbling, beloved. That ought to be humbling, especially when we come into the place of worship where we meet with the one who sits amongst us and tries every one of us as we approach his throne. But there's something for our comfort in this text that we can't miss. And we'll close with this. The knowledge that Christ has of his people, it is not only performative. He not only sees what he will do in them, and it's not only perfect. It's not only that he sees them more truly and accurately than any, including themselves. But there is a preciousness in this knowledge that we can't miss. A friend, as you read this text, I think this is one theme that we could quickly overlook. But as he turns to Nathaniel, he says of him, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathaniel was a sincere believer, says Christ. And so what did Christ say of him? How did Christ make judgment of him? A man in whom there is no guile. Well, to contemplate that just for a moment. If you know the recesses of your own heart at any degree, 
Would you say that in your own heart there is no guile? Would you say in your own heart there is no hypocrisy? No taint of insincerity? What would you say that there is nothing in your own heart that's inclined to wickedness? We wouldn't. Well, if this isn't flattery, what is this? Seeing that Nathan had, Nathaniel had the same kind of heart that you and I are possessed of. Well, friend, it shows us the kind of affectionate and tender sight that Christ has of his people. And this is all throughout the scriptures. Though I think we seldom think about it. You remember what Christ says of the bride in Song of Solomon chapter 4. He says, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. There's no spot in thee. This woman herself has proclaimed that she's black. That is, she's touched by iniquity through and through. She feels herself so. But when Christ looks at her, He says, there is no spot in thee. What do we make of that? Because it's essentially and substantially the same thing Christ here says of Nathaniel. James Durham, I think, helpfully explains to us how we're supposed to take that. He says, where there is sincerity in the manner, Christ overlooks and passeth by many spots. Thus he says, thou art all fair. That is, in my account thou art so. I reckon not thy spots, but esteem of thee as if thou had no spot. He concludes by saying, Christ is no severe interpreter of his people. Beloved, it's a staggering thing when the one who searches the hearts of men turns to a man like Nathaniel and says, a sincere believer indeed, in whom is no guile, no spot. Christ sees his people as precious and holds that sight of them with the utmost approbation and affection. Beloved, as we seek to apply this text to us, what can we say? Well, friend, the first thing this asks of us is, are we a disciple? We're not asking in this text, are we a church officer, an extraordinary church officer of the first century? We're asking, are we those who have enrolled ourselves in Christ's school? In other words, can we say that we know Christ, or do we just know about him? Beloved, that is the principal theme in this first chapter. These disciples found him. They knew him and were known of him. I suppose that leads to that second question. Do you know that you are known of him? I know that's the, that is the most pressing of questions, but we can know that. You remember, if, you, if you've been with us in, in our time in the book of Galatians, in Galatians 4, the apostle turns to them and he says, not only did you know the truth, but you were known of God. That is, you knew you had evidence that God was mercifully disposed toward you. That he saw you as we find him seeing Nathaniel a sincere believer, and one deeply loved. In other words, friend, do you know, has your calling and election been made sure, and are you making it sure? Do you know Christ, and are you known of him? What is the comfort that comes from this text? I've hinted at it already, but briefly, friend, by emphasizing, as we should, 
The fact that we have here Christ knowing his disciples in his humanity. Then we can go to a text like Hebrews 4 and find a wealth of comfort for those who are truly Christ's people. Christ, beloved, is observant and truly sympathetic with his own, even as he knows them. And what does that mean? That means, friend, that the Christ who is there, who is alive this morning, who sees and who knows you this morning, is God-man. And is the same Christ whom we read about in the Gospels, that when he saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion on them. This is the same Jesus that when he came out, saw much people and was moved with compassion towards them because they were as sheep not having a shepherd. Beloved, therein lies the consolation that Christ actually knows you, if you are his. Yes, the Lord God was always disposed to his own. A beloved in the incarnate Son of God, you have a disposition that is both divine and human. A sympathetic high priest who is God and man. And that for your consolation. The exhortation from this text is to know him so. Know him as he is, beloved. That will require much of you. Beloved, it will require many crosses. It will require many afflictions. You will need to part with the world. You will need to leave your fishnets. You will need to leave friends and companions. You will need to seek him in earnest and sometimes in the wilderness. But beloved, if you know him, you will know his matchless, his peerless worth. And you'll be known of him. The second exhortation from this text, friend, is to esteem his knowledge precious. We'll sing it in just a moment, but in Psalm 139, that's precisely the use the psalmist himself makes of this truth. He says, how precious are thy thoughts unto me, O God. Matthew Paul on that text writes this. He says, in paraphrase, thou didst not only form me at first, but ever since my conception and birth, thy thoughts have been employed for me. Beloved, as we think of Christ knowing his people, what that psalmist reminds us of is that this truth should be precious to us because Christ's knowledge of his people is performative, it's perfect, it's precious because he employs that knowledge for your good, for the triune glory, for the glory of our triune God. May we be a people who think much of the Christ who is there. May we see him as we ought to see him. And may we rejoice that he perceives even as he's perceived. Amen.